Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. And we begin tonight with breaking news. As the fall respiratory season is upon us, masks are coming back to healthcare settings. Global News has obtained an internal memo sent to healthcare providers today on the province's plans to reinstate enhanced infection prevention measures. Keith Baldry joins us now with more on the development. Keith, the announcement is actually coming tomorrow, uh, but what have you learned early? Yeah, announcement coming from Health Minister Adrian Dix and Dr. Bonnie Henry. The memo went out today to health employees in the health authorities today saying masks are coming back to healthcare settings. So again, very widely implemented rule. That was the rule up until a few months ago. It's now been voluntary for the last few months. But this memo does read in part, tying this to the respiratory illness season that's almost upon us. So it reads in part, in preparation for the viral respiratory illness this fall and winter, BC will be reinstating enhanced infection prevention and control measures in healthcare settings, services and programs, including community physician offices and outpatient clinics. That includes the wearing of masks in these settings, uh, including long-term care homes. We asked uh, Health Minister Adrian Nix about that today, an unrelated briefing. And he points out this is hardly a secret. It's been talked about for months in preparation for this fall and winter. But it's not a secret. We've been talking about this for about a month that uh, for the respiratory illness season in the fall, we, we would expect in healthcare settings enhanced masking. And so we'll have details of that tomorrow. All right, Keith, anything else expected to come out of that briefing tomorrow? Yeah, it's going to be chock full of uh, details like an old-fashioned COVID briefing, Chris. So Dr. Henry and Health Minister Andrew Dix in Vancouver addressing a number of issues, the mask rules, of course, but also a COVID update, the number of cases. We have seen an escalation in the number of cases and hospitalizations. Also an update, and this will get a lot of interest, on the vaccination pro uh, program, both in terms of flu vaccine, when that's arriving, and when the booster shots for COVID will be arriving. And that'll be rolled out again uh, based on age and uh, healthcare workers' long-term care homes and such. Also an update on our acute uh, care bed situation in hospitals. They're expected to fill up rather rapidly as well. One other thing, no new uh, testing requirements, no new vaccine mandates. This is simply going back to the mask rules in healthcare settings only. This is all going to be presented by those two. And we're going to be carrying it live on Global Noon News tomorrow, just after the Noon News. Noon News and throughout the afternoon too on BC1. Exactly. And right back here on the News Hour. All right. Thanks very much, Keith. Well, BC's strained emergency rooms might soon see new resources with a proposal to allow physician assistants to work in ERs. But as Aaron MacArthur reports, critics say the changes don't go far enough to ease the pressure on the struggling health care system. Overworked and understaffed. Emergency departments cross BC, too often bursting at the seams. The B.C. government making an announcement Wednesday that aims to take some of the burden off doctors' shoulders, potentially allowing physician assistants to work in the ER. This is building out team-based care. By definition, when you have positions that are, that are under the supervision of doctors and nurses, you need to do it in an emergency room. 
The College of Physicians and Surgeons is looking for feedback over the next seven days, but the door could be open to hiring physician assistants shortly afterwards. B.C., one of the last remaining jurisdictions in the country that doesn't allow PAs to work in the healthcare setting. Doctors of B.C. believe this will be a welcome relief to practicing physicians. Emergency rooms start eventually clinics, hospitals. I think there's a great opportunity to work alongside physicians to both unburden them, but mostly importantly provide better patient care. PAs have a different level of training than nurse practitioners. They work under the supervision of a doctor, and according to the Canadian Association of PAs... Just make sure everything sounds okay. Its members can take on 75% of the visits a doctor normally sees in a typical day. In an ER setting, freeing up doctors to deal with more complex patients. Critics say there are more opportunities to utilize this skill set outside the ER. It's a good first step. It's frankly a little bit too little. It's not too late though. Physicians assistants are incredibly valuable members of the healthcare team and that's what's lacking in this province's team-based care. It's unclear when PAs could begin work in BC, but the need for more team-based care is immediate. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. A Vernon mother is looking for answers after what she calls a terrifying and traumatic experience taking her son to the hospital. Ashley Laybourne took her four-year-old to the ER when he woke up in pain with an upset stomach. She says even though her son had begun to twitch in the ER, as she describes it, she was sent home and told to monitor him for possible a stomach bug or appendicitis. On the way home, he went into full seizures. She pulled over, waved down passersby for help and called 911. He, at that point, was just completely unconscious and the people who had stopped were checking to make sure he was breathing. I feel very heartbroken that we were sent home because his long seizure could have been stopped or at least having, I don't think it would have been as traumatic. I feel very dismissed and I feel like the doctors weren't actually listening to what I was saying to them. Leborn says the seizure lasted six minutes. Her son ended up in intensive care and will be tested for epilepsy. Interior Health says it won't comment on specific cases, but told Global News patient conditions may change quickly. And as with all patients that present to the emergency department, we encourage them to return if there is a change or worsening symptoms. The B.C. government is targeting $20 million for the Canadian Cancer Society and Hope Air. The funding will help British Columbians living in rural and remote areas who have to travel for their treatment. But as Richard Zussman reports, some say that investment is just a drop in the bucket for rural communities who are underserved by the health care system. This is Savin Fry's home for now. The 20-year-old from Nanaimo living at the Canadian Cancer Society Lodge in Vancouver. Well, he's going through brain cancer treatment. It can be very traumatizing for those who cannot even show up to those appointments or those treatments. So to have that funding is um, it's the best thing anyone can do. On Wednesday, the province announcing help for Fry and others doubling grants to Hope Air and the Canadian Cancer Society so they can expand accommodation and travel services for those receiving cancer treatments and reduce the burden patients pay themselves. Never have we seen this level of investment in supporting people in rural BC to travel to get treatment for cancer. This is something that I've wanted to do for a long time. BC has some of the longest waits for radiation in Canada. 
Part of the challenge are cancer centers. There are just two of them in Victoria and Vancouver. But new ones are coming to Burnaby, Surrey, Nanaimo and Kamloops. We're expecting over the next 10 years an increase in cancer diagnosis from 30,000 a year to 45,000 a year because of the increasing population of British Columbia and the aging of that population. Some patients are being sent to Bellingham to receive cancer treatment, a program the province describes as short-term, but as critics worried about the healthcare system. I'm more than worried. I'm terrified, to be honest with you, because a lot of our MLAs are hearing from folks that the delayed access to treatment is, frankly, people are dying. Back at the Cancer Centre Lodge, Fry grateful for the support, but worried about growing pressure on the system. If you do put something even in close proximity, it can help people save on gas, on hotels, on, on travel stay. Price message, a community consisting of those who aid allows those with cancer to be less afraid. Richard Zuspin, Global News, Victoria. Surrey residents got a scare when the emergency response team rushed in to deal with a suspected shooting in Surrey's Birdland neighborhood. Heavily armed officers and a canine unit surrounded a home on Oriel Drive around noon today. The operation followed a man arriving at a local hospital with non-life-threatening gunshot wounds several hours earlier. The front window of the home police were targeting was broken. No word on what sparked the incident or if any arrest has been made. We're learning a little bit more today about Henry Doyle, the man identified by homicide investigators as the victim of what is a suspicious death on a remote Sunshine Coast logging road. Kristen Robinson reports on Doyle's life and the investigation into how he died. Homicide investigators are trying to figure out why a successful Vancouver businessman ended up dead on a remote logging road on the Sunshine Coast. RCMP are collecting evidence of the recreational property owned by Henry Doyle on the Sunshine Coast Highway in Ruby Lake, some 50 kilometers north of Seashelt. The integrated homicide investigation team says the 58-year-old was found seriously injured on Klein Lake Forest Service Road in Egmont on Saturday, September 23rd. Doyle had been riding his dirt bike, which was found nearby. Despite emergency first aid, he did not survive and his death is deemed suspicious. Very kind with people, generous, like always have tremendous us in, in, in any way. So us was completely in shock. Neighbors say Doyle was well loved in the community and had been on the Sunshine Coast with his son this past weekend. IHIT won't say how Doyle was injured, but says the initial evidence suggests his death was a targeted incident and not a random attack. Hi. Always a pleasure, Melissa. Doyle was the president and founder of Heaps and Doyle, a Vancouver-based company which provides dental practice business advice and consulting services. He was also the president of the Dental Industry Association of Canada, which said Doyle led with passion and integrity and was a respected figure in the industry. He was a, such a big uh, personality here in Ruby Lake because he lived just beside my house here and uh, I was gonna miss her tremendously. Who caused Doyle's death and why remains a mystery, leaving the small, tight-knit community of Ruby Lake shaken. Kristen Robinson, Global News. 
Mounties in Burnaby are asking for the public's help to identify two suspects wanted in connection to a robbery and assault at Metrotown. RCMP say just before 4.30 in the afternoon, September 17th, two suspects allegedly stole $10,000 worth of sunglasses from a mall business. When a security guard tried to intervene, police say the suspects used pepper spray, fleeing before officers arrived. The two suspects are the men seen in these photos. They were both wearing medical masks and baseball caps. Anyone who recognizes them is asked to contact RCMP. The family of a young man savagely beaten and left brain damaged for life has won a victory in court. Jesse Simpson's family sued the man convicted of the assault in civil court. He then tried to move assets, which was halted by a judge. Catherine Urquhart reports. In 2016, Christopher Tykreep savagely beat 18-year-old Jesse Simpson with a baseball bat, leaving him with catastrophic injuries. Eight years later, he has serious ongoing medical needs. He is recovering from surgery. Last night I spent with him and he is sick. Simpson was attacked by Tykreep after wandering onto his Kamloops property amid end-of-school celebrations with friends. If the victim doesn't make it, um, then our major crime unit will be speaking with Crown Counsel to see if the charges will be upgraded. Simpson survived, and Tykreep was sentenced to seven years in prison. Now, the court-ordered sale of his former house is proceeding. It follows a civil suit which ruled he pay $7 million to Jesse, who needs constant care, and recently told his mother he hopes Ty Kreeb remains in jail. Ty Kreeb should be in jail for the rest of your life. Thank you, everybody. Ty Kreeb previously tried to avoid paying his victim by transferring title of his house to his parents. And while the court sale is a win, numerous liens against the property could result in Jesse receiving little, if any, money. He needs help the rest of his life. No matter what happens with this, it's not going to cover his expenses for the rest of his life. In an effort to raise funds, Susanna Simpson is writing a book about what has happened over the past eight years. This determined mother doing everything she can to care for her son. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Emergency business loans were a lifesaver when COVID hit, but now some say repayment could be fatal. Businesses are now dealing with inflation, uh, higher interest rates. The government has already extended the deadline for repayment of the pandemic loans, but it's not nearly enough for nonprofits like this one or many others facing the looming deadline. What they're asking for next on the News Hour. I probably would not let my dog walk off her leash anymore. The potentially explosive situation that's closed several busy North Vancouver trails for a third time. And showing some love for Lou. The Canucks get set to pump Roberto Luongo's tires in the ring of honor. That coming up a little bit later. First, though, many small businesses and nonprofits are struggling to survive the impact of inflation and rising interest rates. Now they're facing added pressure to pay back pandemic loans. As Kylie Stanton reports, with that deadline looming, many say they need more time. It's really pretty. Surviving the pandemic is still a work in progress. The Victoria Women in Need Community Cooperative is servicing more clients than ever and only hanging on because of a federal emergency loan. 
it was crucial at that time for us. But the deadline to repay the Canadian Emergency Business Account loan is looming. And that has many nonprofits and small businesses calling for an extension. This is a much longer journey than you know, any one of us could have imagined. Um, and so we need more time. According to the Federal Ministry of Finance, to be eligible for the forgiven portion of the loan, it has already pushed the deadline by one year to December 31st, 2023. It recently granted a small extension of another 18 days or until the end of March if the business makes a refinancing application with the institution that provided the loan. But advocates say, given the circumstances, it doesn't go far enough. Businesses are now dealing with inflation, uh, higher interest rates. They may have been prepared to pay this back, but costs have escalated in the meantime, so it's making it more difficult for them to do so. The Greater Victoria Chamber of Commerce is now joining the call for a two-year extension on the forgivable portion of the loan that comes to ten dollars or $20,000, depending on the total amount that was borrowed. If this extension could happen, it means these businesses have a much better chance of surviving. But so many have already decided to make other plans. On social media, Java Joe's announced its closure and plans to downsize, writing, I have to make the hard call. While Sherwood's recently shared, the business has now been sold. Its owner writing, I'm exhausted, my family needs me, and my staff have done the work of heroes for way too long. If we kill small business, um, we're going to have even bigger problems. So I'm, I'm pleading with everybody, let's work together. Let's find a solution here. We're going to pay the money back. Just give us a bit more time. Only one-fifth of the 900,000 enterprises that received the loans have paid them back in full. So Yaz Ganilou is far from alone, still counting every dollar. Kylie Stanton, Global News. TransLink's board is revealing more on how transit will become more accessible. The plan includes 32 actions to help identify, remove and prevent barriers across TransLink operations. One of the goals is to increase Handy Dart service by 3% this year. Following rising concerns, those rides were being handed off to private taxi companies. A coalition of riders, disability advocates and labour groups has raised concerns describing severe safety issues with taxis. Other goals in the plan include developing an accessibility advisory committee, station assistance and travel training workshops. So we have a very strong tradition uh, at TransLink of uh, working with uh, people with disabilities and advocates uh, to, to learn from them and improve our system. For HandyDart, uh, we're also seeing ridership growth there. Uh, we're always prioritizing getting customers, of course, where they need to go, where they need to go to their appointments. Um, and we do that either through HandyDart or through taxi service. Uh, we delivered 98% of the requested trips. Uh, and... On-time performance uh, for August was 91%. In light of these plans, TransLink is asking for any feedback riders might have, saying it is committed to updating the plan every three years. Just ahead, the big fight over BC's open net fish farms. Arguments from opponents and operators, both saying they have science on their side. Next. And the smash and grab at a high-end Vancouver jewelry store. Still super busy here for eastbound traffic on Highway 1 through the Burnaby Lake stretch after clearing up an earlier multi-vehicle crash near Gillardy. Today's Lotto 649 Gold Ball jackpot is $68 million plus the classic $5 million jackpot to jackpots on every draw. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above Highway 1 in Burnaby.
With the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation approaching, a coalition of stakeholders is demanding the federal government follow through on its pledge to remove open net salmon farms from the B.C. coast. As Troy Charles reports, the fish farm industry is pushing back, saying it has science and many First Nations on its side. Unfortunately, the more we look at possible risks from open net salmon farms, the more risks we find. There are currently 57 salmon farms operating in British Columbia. For those at today's press conference, that's 57 too many. The federal government needs to keep its commitment to remove open net fish farms from our communities. Hey guys. During the 2019 federal election, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau promised to phase out open net farms in B.C. by 2025. Last February, the federal fisheries ministry closed 15 open net Atlantic salmon farms in the Discovery Islands. Activists and First Nation partners still claim that B.C.'s wild Pacific salmon economy, along with 100,000 jobs, is at risk of collapse. Fish farms are certainly one of those biggest stressors and impacts that must be dealt with. The BC Salmon Farmers Association disagrees. That is patently incorrect. We have the amazing amount of science that shows that we are uh, not a risk to wild Pacific salmon. Kingsett says climate change and habitat loss shoulder the majority of blame, adding that the closure of all remaining salmon farms would mean the loss of 5,000 jobs and around $1.2 billion to the GDP. A coalition of First Nations communities is also against the closures. There's so much more around estuary management, um, habitat management, and those other issues that need to be on the table. And it's unfortunate that the activists continue to just beat this drum about aquaculture being the decline of wild salmon. Smith says they have a group of delegates in Ottawa this week meeting with the new Minister of Fisheries, Diane Lebute, who only took the role in late July. In a statement to Global News, the Department of Fisheries didn't actually say whether it was still on track for its 2025 goal, but did say it has extended consultation at the behest of First Nations and other stakeholders. Troy Charles, Global News. Well, there are reports of coyotes chasing people at the Lower Seymour Conservation Reserve in North Vancouver. The Conservation Officer Service says on Tuesday, several coyotes were reported to be chasing people and pets including a woman riding a horse. The service is investigating and says it will respond when necessary to ensure public safety. Metro Vancouver officials say the connector trail to the reserve in Lynn Headwaters Regional Park is designated as leash required for the safety of pets and wildlife, and visitors are urged to exercise caution and comply with posted signage in natural areas with active wildlife. Coming up from baby boom to bust, I think people are acknowledging the fact that it's harder to have kids. BC's declining birth rate and how cost of living is a big factor. But first, an apology from the Prime Minister. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. 
If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Steady in both directions over here at the Alex Razor Bridge tonight. Just a bit of leftover volume on the east-west connector between night and the S-curve. Through Kermac Cares for Kids, expert care for your vehicle helps provide expert care for kids. Kermac is celebrating 50 years of collision and auto-glass services. Choose the best. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Alex Fraser Bridge. The Prime Minister has formally apologized on behalf of Parliament after a former Nazi soldier was applauded in the House of Commons on Friday. Yesterday, Anthony Rota, the Speaker of the House, announced his resignation, which is effective this evening. He said he takes full responsibility for inviting Yaroslav Hunka to the chamber. The 98-year-old served in the Second World War in a unit of Hitler's Waffen-SS that committed atrocities against Polish and Jewish civilians. He was introduced and given a standing ovation at the beginning of the parliamentary sit sitting hosting Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. The incident is being described as one of Canada's worst ever diplomatic blunders. This was a mistake that has deeply embarrassed Parliament and Canada. All of us who were in this House on Friday regret deeply having stood and clapped, even though we did so unaware of the context. It was a horrendous violation of the memory of the millions of people who died in the Holocaust, and it was deeply, deeply painful for Jewish people. It also hurt Polish people, Roma people, 2SLGBTQI plus people, disabled people, racialized people, and the many millions who were targeted by the Nazi genocide. Russia is using the incident as proof of its anti-Nazi propaganda against Ukraine. The Polish government has begun the process to have Hanka extradited to face criminal penalties for war crimes. Innovation Minister Francois-Philippe Champagne is unveiling a voluntary code of conduct for the use of AI systems, which includes commitment to transparency and avoiding bias. Ottawa is preparing a new bill to promote the safe development of artificial intelligence in Canada. But as Global's Kyle Benning explains, critics say their concerns aren't being addressed. Come on now, It's one step the industry minister says will put Canada in the driver's seat when it comes to regulating AI. Passing Bill C-27 will include measures to put rules in place for the technology that is moving extraordinarily fast. And now Francois-Philippe Champagne is putting a voluntary code of conduct in place to give the industry the roadmap for how Canada will consider its AI rules. The mission we should give ourselves is to move from fear to opportunities, making sure that citizens around the world understand the benefit of AI, but also the guardrails that we need to agree together. But as it stands, the bill is raising alarm bells. More than 20 organizations and two dozen experts in human rights and digital law have sent an open letter to the minister around a section of the bill addressing the AI and Data Act. It says, quote, it is clear that the act is not the AI bill people across Canada deserve. We need a reset, and if that is not to be, the bill requires substantial remediation that must incorporate our concerns. 
Canada Research Chair Michael Geist is one of the people who was listed on the letter and says getting the legislation in order should be the government's first concern. The choices that you make today are with us for decades. And so if you get the fundamental principles wrong, you're stuck with them typically for a very long period of time. Those in the industry say regular dialogue and feedback around AI rules are needed given it could play through multiple facets of society. This ongoing conversation is essential for addressing emerging challenges and ensuring the code remains relevant and effective as the months and years go by and as the technology advances. Critics came to the forefront after the minister spoke at the House Industry Committee Tuesday, where he offered amendments verbally, but they say the devil is in the details. It is used by industry on people. So being able to actually fold in a human rights lens, focus on privacy as a human right, these are essential. The open letter also makes note of independence. With concerns, the regulations fall under the Department of Innovation, Science and Economic Development rather than the Office of the Privacy Commissioner. Canada's Privacy Commissioner will offer testimony to the House Committee on Thursday. Kyle Benning, Global News. There has been a big decline in BC's birth rate. The number of babies born dropping by more than 2,000 in 2022. As Cassidy Moscone reports, the high cost of living may be part of the reason. As the cost of living soars, British Columbia's birth rate is on the way down. It's definitely the cost of living. That's definitely what I think is holding us back. Where I am in my life right now, I don't see myself having kids yet. The cost of living is too high. And kids are expensive, no doubt about it, but I think just adjust your lifestyle if you plan to have kids. Federal government data revealing newborn numbers for 2022 fell by more than 2,000 from the year before, the lowest level since 2006. It's probably the biggest decline that we've seen in a single year. There's no single reason. Climate change, more women working, the big one, money. It's, it's harder to have kids when you don't have a home because you can't afford a home because interest rates are through the roof, because there's not available housing. And a society changing. The rhetoric around the purpose of a woman or the purpose of a person with a uterus is just to have children is waning and it's getting pushed back on. Whether it's the cost of living or just changing attitudes, our population is getting smaller and experts say society, supports and systems need to change with it. Now we run the risk of how are we able to continue to support older adults knowing that our population is potentially getting smaller? A system is created to meet the needs of a population and it can be revised to meet the needs of a new, new looking population as well. Ups and downs to keep up with the young and old. Cassidy Moscone, Global News. Meantime, new estimates from Statistics Canada suggest immigration is responsible for the largest annual population boost in Canada since 1957. Data shows the country's population grew by more than 1 million people between July 2022 and July of 2023, an increase of roughly 3%. Canada also saw a 46% increase in the number of temporary residents over that same period. Ottawa has set record-breaking targets when it comes to immigration, but hasn't outlined specific goals or caps for the number of people who come to Canada on temporary visas. Canada's population is now estimated to be well over 40 million.
Still ahead, thieves hit a high-end jewelry store and they used a U-Haul truck to do it. Why that might not have been the best idea. Next. Also ahead, why you'll soon be hearing chants of Lou again at Rogers Lou. Arena. Okay, that's enough. <laughs> at Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Police are investigating an attempted smash and grab in downtown Vancouver. Just before 5.30 this morning, police say a number of witnesses called 911 to report the driver of a U-Haul who had crashed into the Cartier store near Burrard and Alberni streets where two men in black hoodies were then seen running west on Alberni. Police say it doesn't appear any items were taken from the store and so far no arrests have been made. Got noticed, though. It certainly did. Mm -hmm. All right, let's bring in uh, meteorologist Christy Gordon now with a look at our weather forecast. And it uh, feels like mm -hmm. we only said goodbye to summer, like, just days ago, in <laughs> fact. And we're already talking about ski season. You're exactly right. So we transitioned to fall, what was it, last Friday, and uh, it felt like fall, certainly this week, and now this. Yes, whiteout conditions in Whistler Blackcomb. This is just from this afternoon. Uh, there was also snow in the big white uh, mountain area at the very top. Uh, nice to see that. Exciting for skiers and snowboarders. We're still a ways away, of course, from the start of the season, but uh, the cool air mass across the region has meant that we've had that drop in the freezing level. So these are the temperatures, daytime highs. You can see below seasonal for a lot of areas and in the low teens it's certainly chilly so the drop in the jet stream is what has pulled in that cooler air mass especially over higher elevations we're going to see a brief ridge of high pressure that helps to protect us give us that sunshine and we'll see a slight warm-up for a few days perfect timing for the weekend but we need more rainfall and it looks like we're going to see another drop in the ridge of high pressure we've got more rainfall on the way for us next week in the meantime for our region over the next 24 hours we're going to see a pulse of rainfall move across the south coast overnight so that will be the case across Metro Vancouver tomorrow morning, but it will continue to shift east throughout the day. So more breaks of blue sky by the afternoon, but we still do have a slight chance of showers. But overall, we're trending towards some brighter spots in the afternoon for our Thursday. Unsettled conditions from the BC Peace River area through the central interior and the southern interior. Vancouver Island expect more breaks of blue sky, also, although a still a slight chance of showers through Campbell River and in Comox. Again, Metro Vancouver, some breaks of blue sky by the afternoon. Not as much of a chance for those of you in the Fraser Valley, but you will be enjoying that sunshine by Friday and into the weekend. Again, we are expecting the rain to return, thankfully, on Monday. We've had an improvement in the forest fire situation again today, by the way. We only have five fires of note, which is great. And fall storm season means, yes, some bright spots out there. Thank you to Jennifer Jones for sharing that photo of double rainbow in Kelowna. Back to you. 
Absolutely beautiful. Thanks very much, Jennifer, for sending that in. And to Christy. Okay, so a date has now been set for the Vancouver Canucks to honor goaltending legend Roberto Luongo. Luongo will be inducted into the Ring of Honor December 14th. That's when the Canucks host the Florida Panthers. He spent eight years of his Hall of Fame career in Vancouver from 2006 to 2014, helping to guide the Canucks to some of their most successful seasons, including, of course, the Stanley Cup Final in 2011. Lou becomes the eighth player in franchise history to be named to the Ring of Honor. Seems like a good segue to bring Squire in right now. He actually played longer in Florida, but they retired his great number. accomplishments here. Florida did retire his number. Um, the Canucks are not, and I think the reason is Kurt McLean wore that number as well. Mm -hmm. Do you jointly retire the number between two players? Well, you could do that, I guess, but the Ring of Honor is nice. McLean's there idea. as well. Uh, bobbleheads, I think, that night too. Ooh. Oh, get a so a Luongo, Luongo bobblehead. bobblehead? Yes, you do. Okay. Like you needed Did another he still reason. tweeting? What's that? Oh, Did I'm he sure he is. But he's a, he's, a, he's a front office guy now. He's got to watch it. So, anyway. Never stopped him before. Well, that's true. The BC Lions know that the day after a game is the most painful day of the week. You get home and then uh, you wake up the next morning, you're like, dang, I, I don't know how I'm going to play a game uh, in a couple of days. We'll get the Lions players to explain the pain they have to endure all season long. Mm, not easy. Also coming up, the explosive problem that's closing trails on the North Shore. Squire's going to bring up that thing no Canucks fan wants to talk about. What's that? The 10 nothing? Yeah. It was exhibition. Of course it was. Nobody cares. But the Canucks do care a little bit. <laughs> they really don't want another 10-0 beatdown like they got in Calgary, even though it was just exhibition. It didn't count. Just the same. It was embarrassing. So this time, for the game in Edmonton tonight, they're taking some NHL players with them because the Oilers are going to lay Connor McDreisaitl on them. And I do recognize some of these guys on the Canucks bench. Uh, Dakota Joshua, who got called out the other day by Rick Tockett, Says he needs to pick up his game. That's what he's got to do. Hit people. Uh, Pedersen gets hit here, and you don't like to see this. Uh, get up. Get up. He's okay, despite what you see there. 0-0 zero, zero after one. The uh, Whitecaps are just getting underway against Colorado. The worst team in the Western Conference. A game the Whitecaps really need to give them a bit of a playoff cushion. After tonight, they'll have four games left in the regular season, but the final three are against the top three teams in the West. So this is the soft touch. This is the one the Whitecaps need to take advantage of. But Vanny Sartini says bad teams can still be a threat. I think every player wants to shine. Every player individually wants to show the organization, the fans, that, uh, okay, I'm worth to, worthing to stay here next year or everywhere in the league. Uh, uh, I, I want to get a contract some, somewhere else. So I think individually, maybe they have more motivation than us. But collectively, uh, we have more motivation than them. So we need to bring the game to this uh, kind of road. Rick Campbell has become Coach Beard, not the assistant coach from Ted Lasso. I mean, Rick Campbell is now a coach with a beard. He's grown one, and he thinks it's good luck. Kind of like a playoff beard, except in the regular season. A preemptive strike playoff beard. And he's unbeaten with it, too. I think it's 3-0. So, that's all right. <laughs> How long are we going to keep it going now? 
I don't know. We're a day we're a day by day thing, so we'll see how it goes. There's no way you can shave now, coach. No, we'll see. It's I'm hanging in there. I'm getting used to it. So, hanging in. Still a bit itchy. The uh, game of football has been described by those who play it to be like in a series of small car accidents during a short span of time. You're going to run into large men at top speed, maybe more than one large man at a time. And it will hurt, not right away maybe, but eventually, like that aforementioned small car accident, you're going to feel it down the road. It's a violent game. But the players, such as the ones who play for the BC Lions, know this and know that pain just comes with the job. Football's not a game for the faint of heart. Um, physically, mentally, or emotionally. The 50, ooh, a slide and he's hit late. Like a KTEL record album, the hits just keep on coming. Snap after snap, play after play, football school of hard knocks, never takes a recess, and always leaves a bruising mark. For me, it's not as bad right after the game, but because uh, all the adrenaline is running and everything. But uh, once you get home and then uh, you wake up the next morning, you're like, dang, I don't know how I'm going to play a game uh, in a couple of days. It's basically how many car accidents a game is basically what's the equivalent to. Probably about five car accidents Gary puts his body into. And then, then he what, gets a day or two off and then has to go out and run around full speed and, and produce on the, on the practice field. Because these guys ball out every single day. So I couldn't imagine having to play a game and then two, three days later have to basically do it again on the practice field. Or a short week when you have four, four days and then go do it again. Like, I couldn't imagine. You don't feel those things really? Like in the game, which is kind of funny to say, but the adrenaline is so high and you're so locked in and you're in the zone um, during the game. But pretty quickly after the game, when the adrenaline drops, you start to feel everything. It is Wayne Moore, and it's a big oh! Oh! With one of the hits of the year. What's hard to fathom is the hits you'd expect to hurt the most don't. Honestly, man, the bigger the hits, the better it feels. Like it doesn't, it doesn't really feel as bad. And like it was a pretty big hit, right? But I didn't, it didn't hurt me, and I don't think it hurt him. So I guess what I'm trying to say is like the bigger the hit, sometimes it, it doesn't really, you don't really feel like it might look like it might be painful, but it's not. It's not. The other thing that might surprise you is the kind of injuries players suffer and the ones training staff deal with the most on a regular basis. There definitely are a few common injuries for sure, you know, especially with the receivers and the DBs. You do get a lot of hamstring strains uh, just because those guys are running at such high velocities. Uh, in terms of you know, other common injuries, you know, a lot of ankle sprains uh, from just kind of the planting, cutting, turning. And of course, another common one is with all the impact that you get, you get just a lot of contusions, you know, knee, quad, leg, shoulder contusions, uh, pretty much always after games. When are you 100% of 12 months out of the year? Uh, so maybe like three or four months out of the year. Yeah. <laughs> See, that's why it's better to watch athletes for a living than be the athlete for a living. You made the right choices. Well, when you're my size, it's probably not a good idea to play that game for a living. Mm, that's true. Fair. Thanks, Squire. Thanks, Squire. Up next, why some hikers might be understandably nervous about a search underway on a number of North Shore trails.
Jordan Armstrong is here with a preview of what's coming up on Global News at 11 tonight. Jordan. Chris, reaction tonight to the return of masking in healthcare settings. Also, taking a look at Vancouver's view cone policy. Is it outdated? One city councillor says yes and wants it reviewed and potentially the number of view cones reduced to unlock new housing opportunities. Now, currently, Vancouver has 26 protected mountain view cones, which limit the height and shape of buildings. Plus, you might want to fill up tonight. We'll tell you how expensive gas could be tomorrow. Details at 11. Chris? Doesn't sound good. Thanks very much, Jordan. A number of popular hiking and mountain biking trails on the North Shore are closed while crews search for what could be deadly hazards. The area was once a firing range and there could be a lot of World War II era explosives still there ready to go off. Grace Key reports. The old Blair rifle range in the district of North Vancouver is now laced with popular year-round trails frequented by the locals. I think they're really popular amongst a lot of dog walkers. Yeah, we take our dog in across the street. And just kind of let it let it go? Yeah, let them go, let them run around. Um, yeah, people bring their kids in there all the time. A lot of people use them for uh, biking and then uh, dog walkers. So there's a lot of dog walkers that go through there. But the area has an interesting past. It was used for military training from the 1930s to 60s, and that involved the use of ammunition and explosives. But they could still be in the ground, and if disturbed, dangerous. When you utilize these trails, you're going to be greeted by signs like these, just letting you know that this was a former military training area. And if you do see something that looks like an unexploded explosive ordinance, you're not to touch it, turn around and leave and call 911. So the Department of National Defense is clearing the unexploded explosive ordinance or UXO from a six to eight hectare parcel of land. It's the continuation of work that's been done before. In 2018, UXO were cleared along trails and open areas. Earlier this year, UXO were removed from some forested areas. And while some neighbors may be a little nervous at the thought of explosives along the trail, others are unfazed. We weren't very concerned. Um, we assumed that if anything was going to go off, it had already gone off before. It concerns me a little bit, I'm not going to lie, yeah. If there was something that was unexploded and you've got little kids riding their bikes and people walking their dogs, that's not safe. Nothing's happened in the years. I mean, I grew up in the area, and so I've used these trails for 20-plus years and never seen anything or had any issues. The work will continue until May. Select trails will be closed on a rotating basis. The Department of National Defense is assuring all users that it's still safe to enjoy the trails that remain open. Grace Key, Global News. You know, and I was just planning on going for a hike, like really <laughs> big hike, but well, <laughs> it's I, I too think, bad. You know, don't yeah. put a big stick in the ground or anything. Just no. Walk lightly. It, I mean, yeah, right. I mean, you want to be careful. You think about all those mountain bike trail builders up there, too, and I know they've closed the trails where there could be a problem, but you'd be just a yeah. little bit nervous putting a shovel in the ground up there, I think. <laughs> All right, let's check weather uh, real quick here before we go and uh, maybe a return to the sunshine. Christy?
That's what I was going to say. I think a lot of people will be getting out to enjoy a hike maybe this weekend. So we have a bit of a clearing expected on Friday. In the meantime, tomorrow, expect periods of rain, especially earlier in the day. And we are expecting breaks of blue sky for Metro Vancouver by the afternoon, but we still do have a slight chance of a passing shower. And for those of you in the Fraser Valley, keep your eye out for a few thunderstorms. You may even see that into Maple Ridge. But that's some nice sunshine, good timing over the weekend before the well-needed rain returns on Monday. Not much of a warm-up in that sunshine as you saw there, though. No, maybe some double rainbows, though. You never know. Mm -hmm. Am I getting a new couch soon? Are you getting a new couch? <laughs> yes. I think that's good. Well, I think happen. it's everyone's couch. It's the collective couch, oh, Squire. Oh, sorry. Have a good yes. night, everybody.